Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Young Musician's Guide podcast. I am your host, Aaron Campbell, and I could not be more excited to be getting started with our very first episode. Um, If you did not catch the Zero episode, this is a podcast meant for younger musicians who are starting out their careers or looking into careers and are trying to get a heads up onto what all the different things are that are going on in the music world and get an idea of all the awesome possibilities that they have to make a living in the world of music. So like I said earlier, this is episode one. Uh, So it is a newer podcast. It is very young. So If you are enjoying what you hear and you want to know how to help support this podcast and help it grow, some things you can do are to comment and subscribe on iTunes, or if you're listening to this on YouTube, liking, subscribing to that page um, and giving, leaving comments there just to kind of boost things up and let people know that good stuff is happening on the uh, Young Musicians Guide. A more financial way that you could possibly help is by going to the Patreon, which is also linked in the uh, descriptions, however you're listening to this, and pledging for that if you have a little bit of money um, and you want to help us keep the lights on here in the studio. And the third and probably most helpful way you could help is by sharing this and telling people about it and uh, letting other people know that you're enjoying this and that there's good content out there, especially if you're a music teacher um, who have students who are interested in having a music career down the line. I feel like this is really geared towards them. And though everybody can get a little bit of something out of this, I really feel like this can be helpful to younger people who are looking for careers and aren't quite sure where they're going to end up in the musical world. With all of that, with subscribing and liking and sharing and even giving a few bucks if you can, we can really help make this podcast grow. So today on the podcast, we have composer, radio personality, and awesome guy, Tyler Klein. Tyler lives here in the Tampa Bay area and works for a radio company that does um, all the classical music here. Um, But he also is just making his way um, through the classical music world as a composer. Um, He works primarily with a lot of new sounds and new techniques, and he writes a lot of really interesting music. And Tyler was gracious enough to give us a couple of his recordings of some of his pieces. Um, So those are going to play at the end of the episode. The first recording that you're going to hear is his piece called On the Substance of Multiplicity uh, that was performed at the 2014 Atlantic Music Festival and is being performed by the uh, resident contemporary ensemble there. And that is the first piece that you're going to hear. And then the second piece is uh, for trombone and viola. And that is called Flay and features Justin Crushore on trombone and Emma Huey on viola. Tyler was also nice enough to give me links to the sound, his SoundCloud where you can listen to many more of his pieces. And I, ho- I really encourage you guys to go check it out and um, give him likes on there and subscribe to him on SoundCloud. So without further ado, let's kick it off. Here is episode one of the Young Musician's Guide podcast with composer Tyler Klein. So most of the recording that I do 
It's like a small little tripod, Zoom H4n. Yeah. And like the pop filter that actually came with it doesn't actually fit over the H4n. Oh, my God. <laughs> so it's like sideways a little bit. But yeah, thanks for letting us come out here and do this. You're setting the bar really high for the first episode in well, terms of sound quality. I apologize. I'm a bit of a an audiophile. So you're, you're just like going to be perfect. <laughs> well, I mean, that's so considering the things that you do, that makes sense. Yeah. For everything. What, where'd you start? What got you playing in music, all that kind of stuff? Where did you grow up? I, uh, I grew up in a small, uh, I guess a manufacturing town in Kentucky, a population less than 7,000. Uh, I've heard people refer to like Florida cities as small towns. And I'm like, no, I don't think you understand. Like it was rural. Um, a lot of the jobs were like either in teaching at the schools or, or manufacturing, you know, like the, the highlight was like, like an Applebee's, like as far as restaurants go. So it was a tiny town. Um, that's where I grew up about 30 miles east of Lexington, Kentucky. Um, like that was the big city for us. <laughs> gotcha. And did you take like music lessons growing up or where? Yeah. That- well, what, what got me into music was, uh, I, and I don't know, I don't really understand even now, like looking back why this was, but you know, my grandpa was a musician, but he wasn't like a, like a musician beyond high school. <laughs> like I just knew that, you know, he played uh, cornet in high school. He's the high school drum major. This is like the late fifties, early sixties, you know? Um, but he, he, I never saw him play music. Uh, my grandmother was also, she was a musician. She played piano and she had an, like an electric organ in her house when, uh, when I was growing up. And, um, you know, that was the extent of the music that I saw my family kind of do was my, my grandma would kind of noodle on the organ with us, like me and my cousins. And, um, that was really my first exposure to like actually tactile music making, uh, when I was really little. So I was determined to, to follow in my grandfather's footsteps, uh, I guess in some way to, uh, to pick up the trumpet when, uh, when I got the middle school band. So I, I didn't play music until I was in middle school or play music formally. And I played the trumpet. I also took, um, piano, les- piano lessons for a short time, uh, in middle school. And, um, and then I switched to, uh, the baritone as we could, the so-called baritone when, uh, well, it probably was a baritone. I think it was a euphonium. Really? I, I think it was, I, I'm not really sure, but you know what I'm talking about. Oh, One yeah. of those little three valve kind of, uh, cheapo middle school band instruments. And I was really no good at trumpet. Like I was, my, my brain was good, but my, uh, facilities in performance was not good. And so when I switched to a bigger instrument, uh, cause I'm, I'm a bigger dude. Um, that, that kind of really helped me take off in terms of, uh, in terms of performance. Gotcha. So you started on trumpet. Did you spend any time in band on trumpet or did you go straight to baritone? No, I spent two years on trumpet. Oh, so you um, and I did the exact same thing. Yeah. Eighth grade moved over. Yep. Yeah, I, that's exactly what I did. And I was like, I remember being challenged by someone, a trombone player who, had been in marching band as a middle schooler. Like, Oh, I played the baritone and marching band. You, I bet you can't do it. And I'm like, Oh yeah, well I'll show you. And, and, um, I remember, you know, receiving parts as a newly, 
uh, minted baritone player and seeing the treble clef side and the bass clef side. And I remember uh, wanting to play the treble clef side. Like, I didn't want to learn bass clef because um, I, I could already play treble clef. And, and the high school band director at the time, uh, who ended up being my high school band director uh, for all four years, he was like, read the bass clef. You'll thank me in 10 years. <laughs> and um, I guess it's almost been – well, it's been 10 years. So, yeah, I really appreciate that he, <laughs> he forced me to, <laughs> to read bass clef because I can still, you know – read treble cleft is fine i can read alto cleft now it's great <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's it's a funny especially on that instrument you need to be able to do both like yeah in general you, you need to be able to do all of it um cool so did you when you were in high school did you write anything did you when did the composition side of things start i think i think it really started when i was a freshman i played electric bass in the jazz band I I couldn't read changes very well, so I ended up like finding a recording and transcribing what the bass player was doing over the changes and uh into reading this transcription. Um and I think that was like the the real starting point was like and then that led to arranging and then by the time I was a junior I was uh, composing more original music, most of which didn't really see the light of day. I think I still have it on a folder on my computer. So uh, I was about to ask, were you just messing around on Finale or I something think, like I that? I think that was, the, that was mostly it. I was, I was messing around in Finale. Um, but I did produce one short piece for Brass Quintet, I think, um, that ended up being like my high school band director gr- graciously allowed us to perform it at graduation. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that was really it as far as like performances of my music goes in high school and um the interesting thing about i'm sure this is the conversation is leading here so i'll go ahead and take us there um the interesting thing about my undergraduate studies is there there was no composition classes there was no composition teachers so i kind of just continued um more or less messing around in finale and into college and and it wasn't until like my sophomore year that I, i became really serious about composition and i uh you know i i started writing a little bit more um and being asked to write music from people so what did you major in for your undergrad my major technically was just a bachelor of arts in music like a very general like a general music yeah studies. uh and i got a minor in business general business oh good um yeah i, I tried to be like use i tried to do something useful (laughs) (laughs) i'm telling i mean if there's anything that a lot of musicians are bad at which is a leading point to a lot of what this podcast is is selling themselves oh yeah in general i mean they're like oh i'm an artist and i'm making creative and the the patrons will find me no you've got to yeah you've got to you've got to go out there you've got to be you know don draper and you've got to market yourself yeah and you got to keep a budget and yeah money is an important thing (laughs) Um, yes, I, I actually tell a lot of my students who say, I want to major in music. I'm like, be ready to minor in business or something like that. Cause it's, it's going to be, it's going to be important no matter what you do. Yeah. And my, you know, my primary instrument like yourself was euphonium. Um, and so I guess you could say I studied euphonium. My, my, uh, my primary teacher was the two euphonium teacher at Moorhead state in Kentucky, uh, Stacy Baker, who I adore. And, um, you know, she she really 
led me. Her and another member of the faculty, uh, Deb Eastwood, who um, taught the music theory courses, and she ended up being my mentor um, for some undergraduate research classes, which kind of, that was that was sort of the impetus for going out on my own and uh, researching composition in, in what ways I, I knew was good at the time. Um, you know, I read a lot and I went to the library and made presentations and posters and all that kind of stuff. Um, but it was really self-guided and, and guided by my mentor. The job prospects being a euphonium player, um, I decided I didn't want to be like a music education major. Um, and I, I didn't really want to be in the military. So, and I didn't like to practice. So, I mean, like, you know, composition was something I really enjoyed and something I'm, that made more sense to pursue for me. Um, and, and I did it. And a lot of times I feel like I got lucky. <laughs> <laughs> what drove the, uh, you're self-guided. You, I mean, you taught yourself a lot of things. And, I mean, even from in high school, from noodling around in finale to um, working on compositions with throughout all that kind of stuff. I mean, a lot of that was self-driven. No one – I mean, you didn't have a project. I mean, it wasn't like you were majoring in composition. And if you didn't have a brass quartet written by Monday, you were going to get an F. Like, you didn't right. have those kind of factors leading you. So what were the – what was the – was it just self-drive? Was it interest? Uh, I, I guess a little bit of both. Um, but, you know, having a mentor that helped me with the structure of of the the research, um, that really helped. You know, she imposed deadlines on me. It was almost like <laughs> having a class. Having a class. Like she – we made like a weekly guidelines and, and it was very organized. In a lot of ways, what I did in undergrad is – a direct reflection of how I do things now. Like, because, you know, during my graduate studies, there was like a, a course map and everything was very structured from the outside. And there was, you know, if you don't finish this, you're going to get a bad grade. Um, not that I've ever been motivated by grades and stuff. <laughs> uh, but you know, but it seems like now, looking back, um, you know, this, the self-driven stuff from before my graduate studies, uh, it's kind of – it, it helped, it's helping me now. It helped me in grad school uh, just being disciplined and, and going out and, like, just Googling, you know, just anything I could find, going to the library and pulling books, whatever looked interesting. A lot of it wasn't, but um, – and and – reading stuff that I wasn't interested in, you know, um, you know, all that stuff is really good. <laughs> yeah. It's, and it's, I like what you're saying about just kind of going out and, and reading and, and finding all these things. I can't tell you how many younger people I talk to who have these awesome, amazing dreams and t are talented and are brilliant. Um, but they, we find our excuses to not do things. Um, and I feel like now we've never had more information at our fingers than ever oh, before. Yeah. It's and, awesome. I mean, I've, I literally tell my students, if you see an Italian word on a piece of music that you don't know, just pull out your phone really quick and just Wikipedia, just real quick, just yeah. to figure out. Um, but they won't take that initiative to go out and do that. They won't to, there's a lot of dreams out there, but not a lot of the self-driven mm. aptitude to go out and just 
uh, bust to try to make those things happen. Um, so that's a that's a really interesting and especially the part where you're like I'm going to read stuff that I'm not interested in at all because information's still good information even if it's not exciting for you. I remember one book I read. Um, it was like the same counterpoint book that Mozart read. And that stuff was like dry. <laughs> it's just really dry. And honestly, I don't know if I took much from it, but I still like made an effort to, you know, to to read this book because Mozart read it, you know, influenced Mozart and countless other composers uh, that are long dead. <laughs> yeah, I wonder any any book that we read, right? I, I wonder if we don't just say that it was a good book or we don't just we, – we're not just – because first off, we tend to find stuff that we're interested in. And this is this is in anything in music or any business book or if you're picking up a fiction book and just are excited about it. But also the fact that you like committed time to read it. So you're like, I can't tell people I didn't have a good time. Otherwise, I look like an idiot. Not really, you know. Well, I this is this is kind of getting away from the subject a little bit um, or I guess the purpose of this podcast. <laughs> but, um, you know, I recently I had to make a conscious effort to, um, you know, look for books that challenged what I believe in. And I think, I think no, like people do that obviously, but I don't think enough people do that, you know, like just picking up a book and like totally disagreeing with it, but sticking it out and like reading it anyway and closing it and being like, well, I don't agree with any of that, but (laughs) at least now I, I kind of know (laughs) about someone else's view about something. Yeah. Especially in today's day and age. I mean, Everything on Facebook is clickbait and headlines and yeah. I, and any any article you find about anything, this is, in any any profession or any politics or anything like that, you can find the complete opposite statements by just as educated of a writer and oh yeah, highly qualified and and for obvious reasons. And in these days, we've heard a lot about the the bubbles we put ourselves in, but it's really you know for obvious reasons, people do gravitate towards what they know and what they're used to, and. Um, one thing that my graduate studies at USF really opened me up to was, you know, I had to read essays and I'm just like reading it and I'm like, I don't, you know, I don't agree with this at all, you know? And that's where I think I I learned, like, it's okay to disagree with this, but, you know, read it anyway. <laughs> well, yeah. And especially like, <clears throat> especially what you're saying about, reading stuff and, and and actually it does go into this podcast because of what you do specifically with composition. You're also, you experiment with a lot of sounds. You're doing a little bit of newer music stuff. Um, and there's a lot of people who would fight you tooth and nail on that. Um, and how all the process works and stuff like that. And a lot of those people, he would probably be like, what you're doing is garbage or whatever. And, and this is not me saying that anything you are doing is, but oh, it's okay people run, are. people <laughs> run away from new music, um, really quickly. Um, but they also probably haven't exposed themselves or are not comfortable in trying to listen to these things and take in these newer things. Yeah, well, I think, you know, everything about music is so broad. Like, if you just say music, that could mean literally any number of, like, millions of different things. Um, and when you say, like, classical music, that could also – it's, like, so still broad. And when you say new music, I mean, you're getting – you're narrowing it down, but you're not really narrowing it down that much, you know. Um, you know, and, and there's something out there for everybody, you know, and, and I've listened to a lot of stuff that I don't like, um, but I appreciate and I respect. And, um, 
and that I acknowledge is really well-crafted. And the only way you can get to a point where you can acknowledge if something is well-crafted is if you listen or read or look at a bunch of sheet music or, you know, just consume a lot of stuff, you know, just a lot, like as much as you can handle. Yeah, it's – so So when did you start to um, – when did you start to – uh, I don't want to say sell, but when did you start putting your music out there, having people play it, working on uh, on composition more? So when I, for lack of a better vernacular, when did you stop um, thinking about it as noodling around and started working on composition projects? Was it grad school or was it a little bit before? I think it was before. I think it was my sophomore year of college, like when I committed. Um, and it was quite a commitment <laughs> to me anyway. Um, to pursue composition uh, in spite of the fact that, you know, I didn't have a composition teacher or a composition class to take. Um, but I think when I made that commitment when I, when I was a sophomore in undergrad, I think that's when, um, when I started to be more real about it. You know, like this isn't, I mean, it was fun, but this isn't just for fun. You know, I'm going to have to be disciplined about this. I'm going to have to work on these things. I'm going to have to, um, figure out how to make like, um, a piece of music that is, you know, consistent throughout because when you're noodling around, it's not always, it's like improv, you know, improv people who are good at improvising, um, they are consistent with what they do. And that's like really respectable. Um, composition is, similar is similar in that respect you know um a lot of times if when you're starting out when you're an amateur it's it's not going to be as consistent as you would probably like and that's something i'm still working on you know that composers continue to work on into their careers you know and were you always interested in more experimental stuff or was it when you got to usf because usf has a reputation for um for put not even just the composition people, but even the ensembles for trying newer things. And I, I think I was always interested in, in more experimental stuff. What, what sparked that? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Cause you don't get a lot of times in your, your typical four year university, you don't get exposed to a lot of things like that. So, yeah. Well, to give you an example uh, that, that listeners might not, fully understand, but I know you will as a euphonium player. Uh, when I was in high school, the piece I gravitated towards for all my, anytime I needed to like work up a solo is the Fred Kleiner Sonata, which, which I remember like meeting people older than me in college who like hated that piece, uh, because it was so weird and, and like contemporary and, and like they, they had a hard time with it. And when I, and likewise, whenever I had to work up like a baroque transcription or or any kind of uh quote unquote old music i you know my teacher in undergrad will always like say well you have to eat your broccoli like i was like <laughs> so like i didn't want to do it <laughs> i wanted to play new stuff um and and there's frankly there's not a whole great deal of really high quality new euphonium music so i had to like make my own <laughs> <laughs> Um, but you know, I also remember in high school somehow figuring out like about Luciano Berrio, who is now like my favorite composer. 
Um, but just like listening to uh, his Sinfonia, in particular the third movement, which is based off of um, the third movement of Mahler's second symphony. Um, but it's like totally like turned upside down and it like you hear all these quotes from other pieces. It's like, a, it's like listening, like turning through the dials on a radio almost this piece. And I was, I, I was like listening to that and like the uh, Bartok concerto for orchestra when I was in uh, high school and Stravinsky. Um, and I, so I don't know. I think, you know, looking back, well, I guess at the time I, I probably wasn't aware of what was going on with me, you know, I didn't know I was like weird. <laughs> uh, but, but looking back, it's like the seeds were being planted. And, um, I mean, there was quite a bit of a learning curve when I got to grad school, learning about really all the things out there in a comprehensive manner. Um, I had to, I had to work really hard to, to figure out like all the different things happening in new music, because there is so much like, I I don't know if I could ever possibly like get a grasp on it entirely. Um, But I, I, you know, I definitely liked music um, in my formative years that people around me did not like. (laughs) It's funny you say that Uh, one of my favorite stories from undergrad being here at, at USF was uh, with Dr. McCutcheon. He was going to be on the podcast this season down the line he's so stoked about it um but uh he walks up to the board and he puts like and at the usf rehearsal hall there's this gigantic whiteboard and he goes up and he he puts a square in the corner what looks kind of like like a small like like it's probably about a foot square to this gigantic board and he goes that's everything i know about making music and he said the board is everything there is to know about making music and then he takes like this little like speck and he's like that's what you guys know yeah no <laughs> and, and, he, and he, he didn't mean it to be insulting it's like it's so if you take every aspect of music that there is there's so much yeah um, so so what are you up to now so you're done with you're done with grad school um you've got a few pieces published what are what's the projects on the table currently uh well right now i am um i'm completing a piece that i've been working on off and on uh for solo cello and and live electronics uh, called Braided Belt, which is um, the the piece in general. It kind of has this like, and this this is what I wanted from it. it. It's like has these moments where it seems like tangled up, and then it unravels. And it kind of does this on a on a, on a micro level from like phrase to phrase, where it's tangled up and it unravels and tangles back up. But the whole piece in general has that kind of trajectory and that narrative of like over the course of the 15 minutes of the piece it um it unravels into like this really quiet sort of thing so i uh am making a real effort to finish that it that working on that was interrupted by numerous other projects uh like a 25 minute tuba concerto <laughs> um but you know other than that i i have a solo piano work lined up um that i'm really excited about i uh, i'm going to write a piece for you uh, oh yeah, I, I, I hope. <laughs> well, isn't all right? So I'm and for for the listeners who don't know, so he, yes, he is writing a piece for my my CD that I'm working on, um, and I'm also going to play another piece of his. And you mentioned that you were creating new music for you. Now the the piece that I'm going to play, and I'll let you talk about it in the title and stuff. But that was that was the idea behind it, right? You wrote that for you. I wrote that for me for a performance competition my junior year of college. Did you put a nice little note to yourself, like underneath the title, like? 
no. loving care for a Tyler Klein. No, I didn't. Um, but the, what I noticed about this particular competition was that people uh, always chose music that was like f- really flashy and frankly non-musical like just like runs and notes and like and they usually won <laughs> like because it's like just you know when you play all a bunch of notes uh the judges and this was a school-wide yeah th- this was right? yeah uh, uh, for juniors oh okay um so you know i could have played any number of pieces but you know that kind of flashy stuff it, it's not really me it, it wasn't me it, it still isn't me um so I was committed to writing a piece for myself, um, and I had to play it from memory, um, which, you know, when you write a piece and have to play it from memory, that's you're at kind of an advantage. You know, I was able to write, like, really easy fingerings. <laughs> I don't know how much you've worked on it, but, uh, you know, there's a lot of the open-in-one kind of runs. Oh, so yeah. anytime there was a run, it's like, oh, I'm going to make it in a key that's... So anyway, I was committed to winning this competition on music that uh was musical um and i i mean i did win <laughs> so which is rare by the way for people who don't know it's pretty rare for a euphonium to win those types of concerto competitions at universities i th- i think i was the third in the history of the competition which dated back to like the mid 80s and I think. morehead states had some euphonium players come yeah. through yeah before so that's that says something i mean i i when i was going to jmu my buddy dr joel collier did it like all three years and he he's a fantastic euphonium player um and uh he would he would play he played like the cosma concerto one year oh, like and he crushed it like killed it sounded great when he was doing it but it was like it seemed like might as well not compete because it's, it's like piano player or violin is gonna win yeah because they they have that stuff you know they have the the super flashy oh yeah and they do it memorized and they learn it memorized anyway um so that's that's really cool so when so so now you're you've working on a bunch of projects and all that kind of stuff. Um, one thing that I'm really interested in, especially in kind of the way you compose and having talked to you because you are writing a piece for me. Um, when someone approaches you and they say, "Hey, I would like a piece written," or you know, is there is there I, I, there has to be differences between you just writing something for to write it and put it out there you've got a tune in your head and you want it out versus like me approaching you and saying hey i want a euphonium and piano piece um and do you you find it more constricting one way or the other or do you actually like get excited about the challenge of writing for somebody else or well um i don't remember the last piece i wrote that was just written because of like i wanted to write it um it might have been it was probably my second year of grad school or maybe even my first. Um, I guess what I'm saying is pretty much everything I write now is because people come up to me and they're like, Hey, I'd like a piece. Well, and with conversations with you, it seems like about the time that you're about to put the last period on the page of one composition. Yeah. Somebody else comes up to you and goes, Hey, it's funny because I, I get worried. Like, like I feel like I'm on a pretty good roll, and I'm like, oh my god, when is this going to end? Uh, what am I going to do if this uh, if I run out of things to write? So, have you done a lot of marketing for yourself in terms of getting the the compositions, or is it just? Well, um, pretty much. Ev- there's only been one instance where I guess maybe two where someone will someone I have I have no idea who they are will approach me and ask for a piece. Um, 
That kind of happened with you and I. Kind of, yeah. But that's why I say one, maybe two. Because there's one that definitely, like, I got this email from my website. Like, But even then, it's like people recommend me, you mm-hmm. know. or and, and then outside of that, like, every everyone I've written a piece for, it's like people I've met somewhere along the way. It's people I went to school with. Um, friends. I write music for my friends um, who are really just invaluable in terms of being uh, – really excited about my music and wanting to put it out there um anyway i forgot the original question <laughs> <laughs> that's fine um it was it's cool that i mean everything you say that i'm the hardest part so far about these interviews is unpacking all the awesome things that people say and like not interrupting them and being like but this thing let me talk about this um so when so you're not having to do a heck of a lot of marketing yourself but you, I mean, you are doing some, and it just seems like you're you're putting quality content out there that people are enjoying. But you're also, since you are writing stuff for people, um, like the reason I came, I approached you was because um, it was Kevin von Kampf. You wrote a piece for he really enjoyed it, and he said you might enjoy working with this guy. And that's kind of the trail. Yeah. So, so having that quality content out there seems to be what's working for you the best. Yeah, and you know, like um, one of the more recent pieces I wrote uh, is a is a work called "Collapsing Geography" for oboe and marimba. Um, I would never, on my own, be inclined to write for oboe, <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, a couple years ago, I submitted a uh, work of mine for chamber orchestra to a call for scores, and I won. And then I met the oboe player in this orchestra, and who was on the panel who selected the piece and uh she was really stoked about my music and asked me to write a piece for her and and next month I'm going up to Seattle which is where the call for scores was from and uh she's premiering the piece um so that's you know it's 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 never like out of the blue some person contacts me and it's like you know Hey, I just found your piece by Googling you. You know, that that doesn't really happen. Um, a lot of it's word of mouth. Um, now, there's a lot of stuff. I have three pieces on Potenza, and I'll get, like, a, a royalty check, a very meager royalty check uh, once a year, and it's like I've sold this many copies of this piece, and I have no idea. I, I try so hard to, like, research, like, if anyone I don't know has performed that music, and I can never find anything. Um, that's, that's one reason, and this is like maybe a conversation for another time, but that's one reason I prefer to, uh, just publish everything myself. And the vast majority of my stuff is, is self-published. Um, and why, what's so self with self-publishing, I mean, you hold all the rights to everything. Mm. You set the prices for everything. Right. Plus you get all the money back. So what, what are some of the pros and cons of finding a publisher versus, um, publishing on your own? Well, I don't think, uh, well, I guess only a little bit is it about the money. Um, you know, the great thing there, ha- there has been, uh, instances where my music has been sold on Potenza and I have learned actually one instance and I've learned, uh, of, of a duo playing one of my pieces and that ended up being like a valuable relationship for the long term. Um, 
but I guess what I like about self-publishing is um, it kind of keeps my chops up as far as like marketing and and um, and I have complete control over the product, um, making the music the way like look on the page the way I wanted to like the cosmetic aspects gotcha. of it. Um, you know, I can. Uh, but the most important thing is I know who is playing my music, like without a doubt. Like if someone orders a piece on my website, I know that they have my piece of music. So do you, and if like, would you reach out to them in a future point and be like, you know, thank you or. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So if I know, if I know who's playing my music, I can reach out to them and be like, and I do this often. If anyone who's played my music is listening to this, then they'll know that I do this. Um, I'll be like, Hey, you know, just wondering if you have any updates on performances or, or that kind of thing, because getting performances is the most important thing a composer can do. Um, you know, that's what leads to everything else. That That is the thing that opens the doors to people knowing about you, you know, you making money in any sort of way, um, you know, having a, a portfolio to um, apply to opportunities, whether it's school or like a call for scores or, or like a festival over the summer, you know, you getting performances – you know, is one of many things that you must do as a composer, but it's probably the most important thing that helps fill out everything else. It's funny because an outsider looking in would say it's selling the scores. Yeah, but, you know, that's that's really, unless you're like, I don't know, super famous Joe Schmo, you know, probably middle school band director composer, um, selling sheet music and moving copies isn't that lucrative. <laughs> Um, really it's the performance royalties that are lucrative. Um, you know, compared to like, if I sell a piece that's $30, um, the royalties I get from performances of that music might be like $200, $300 for a performance. Um, I mean, you can do the math. That's, that's like way more lucrative. (laughs) (laughs) Great. So, so lots of, lots of good business stuff. It seems like that that degree is holding itself up that well part of the degree did you you finished it right the general business degree yeah 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 well it's a minor um but you know the curriculum the grad well actually all of the composition curriculum at usf um you know it it embedded in the curriculum is all of this kind of business stuff oh that's awesome yeah it's there's career building there's you know writing press releases there's all of all of like everything um i mean the the general business degree definitely it it helps but i didn't even think to think that your composition degree would have that in there because it typically doesn't like typically it does normally not, you yeah. just get really good at theory and more more than likely a lot of times when you get a composition degree they also try to groom you to be a good theory teacher as well yeah it's uh, like with performance degrees you get really good at the horn and that's it they don't teach you how to sell yourself as a player yeah well if you get a composition degree at usf they'll teach you (laughs) i didn't even think to think about that see that's awesome so and speaking of degrees um for younger people who are like you know, junior, senior in high school, thinking about majoring in music, they are leaning more on the composition end of things. I mean, it's very rare that there's a composition bachelor's, correct? Um, I mean, they, the programs exist, but that's not a normal. Yeah, I, you know, when I think about 
like my prospects as a high schooler in Kentucky, um, there wasn't really anything like seriously like. <laughs> so what would you suggest as somebody major in? Well, if if a student is definitely interested in composition, I think they should pursue it. Well, yeah, without but, question. Like, if they're if they're going to get a music degree and they're going to go into college, do you, you know, the typical options are what music ed, performance, and that tends to be it. Maybe a general music degree. Yeah. Um, where what would you say would be a good major for them if they can't take composition? Um, I, you know, I don't know if I can. I don't know if I have good advice on that. <laughs> well, because you know, I I took a general. I took the general music route. Exactly. Yeah. Um, which is, you know, I, I ended up okay. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, it's like, if you're going to do that, you need another component. Mine was business. Um, but you also need to be very self-driven. Like if, if you are, if you want to be a composer, but you don't have the opportunity to, well, first of all, not majoring in composition should be like a backup, right? Uh, but you can obviously, you know, I myself didn't, I, don't, I only have one composition degree out of two. <laughs> and um, I think I did okay. Um, so it's definitely possible, you know. But, and you did a lot. Of, it was a lot of but, self-education for yourself. Yeah, and so. Figure, and you also had people who were helping you out. But I also, I feel like. Stacy didn't stay on you as much as you were also poking her with questions and learning those types of things yourself. Like, I feel like just knowing you and how you go about things, I feel like a lot of your self-education was also you going and asking questions of the people that you had. Available oh yeah, to you. definitely. And then giving you awesome advice and pushing you forward that way as well. Right. So if you're going to go the general music route, definitely be ready to motivate yourself intrinsically. Um, but I think, Either the other, like music education, that's obviously a uh, a great degree. It's uh, very broad. It's a broad a degree, um, and obviously there's value in that. I still think you got to be self motivated if you want to compose. <laughs> um, but I think performance is a great choice. Um, you know, because it's funny because I think a lot of times people are like musicians and composers like they're two different things but if you're a composer you're a musician you're you're working with music and uh if you're a really great musician you know across the board you're gonna you're gonna know your stuff um you're gonna if you're familiar with music um because really i think the best ask i guess the best way you can educate yourself whether it's guided or self-guided in composition is um it's it's to just consume a lot of music and you can do that as a performer you can do that as a researcher you know <laughs> yeah, it's crazy like i actually think that you guys the composers the people actually create the music that i perform are the more creative musicians than i feel like i'm just a glorified plumber <laughs> and i have to figure out how to how to not mess up whatever it is you're putting in front of me as best i can um great so so you also have a day job yeah. on top of composition, which is a pretty cool day job. Yeah, I like did it. You, did you – how did you – so would we call you a radio personality? What would you um, – I guess radio announcer is is more 
for a classical music station. Yeah. So how did you just kind of fall into that? Did you apply for it? It's uh yeah, I don't know. I guess I kind of fell into it. Um when I was in high school, like my senior year, I had a teacher who was like, "Oh, you know, you have a good voice. You ever thought about going into radio?" And I was like, <laughs> "No." <laughs> Uh, I'm not going to lie. I felt very self-conscious knowing the equipment that we were going to have in your voice versus mine. I felt very self-conscious for what the, the listeners are going to get on the first episode. <laughs> um, well, I've had to work really hard at my speaking voice, <laughs> you know, coming from Kentucky. Uh, uh, yeah. But well, uh, I understand. But anyway, yeah. So my f- the first week I got to – there was a public radio station I, I knew about um, at Moorhead State. Um, that when I got to school there, the very first week I went in and I was like, I'd like to do this, you know, as a, as a, just a job, like a side job. And they were, they were like, well, we're all, and and that station in particular, I think is pretty unique in that, um, it's mostly students working. There's like four full-time professional staff and then everyone else is like a work study. So the the guy who was uh, the classical music host, also a tuba player, um, and uh, the operations guy at that radio station was like, well, if you volunteer for a semester, we'll put you on payroll. And um, and it was really like I received this education and that wasn't like related to my degree at all, um, and. It was like, again, I felt like I kind of lucked out. Um, I did kind of fall into it. So how – and it's a it's a pretty cool job, but a lot of people who are – I mean, this is – I mean, people who are working for orchestra auditions or people who are working as a composer or, you know, moonlighting and, you know, playing and stuff like that, a lot of them are really nervous about getting a day job and they feel like it's going to hinder their work. But also, you need to pay bills. You need to oh, yeah. live indoors, eat food, and all that kind of stuff. Live indoors. <laughs> you don't have to live indoors. I mean, <laughs> it's, I mean, in Florida, it's nice, but I, I assume elsewhere <laughs> in the great white north, uh, you know, Georgia or something, uh, <laughs> it's, it's not so great. Um, so, I mean, how do you how what do you, how do you feel about getting a day job? Um, and how how has that helped you? Would you suggest it for especially starting as a composer? Because I I mean, unless you're John Williams, you're not making, you know, tons and tons of money and revenue constantly. Oh yeah, and, right. Um, yeah, I'm a I'm a big proponent of the day job, whether that's teaching or or doing something totally random. I don't think what I do is totally random, but it's more random than like teaching music, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah, I don't know. Again, this seems to be like a theme uh, throughout this episode. Um, you got to be really self-disciplined and self-structured in order to pull it off. Like, um, and there are times where I feel like I start to get like trapped a little bit. Like, I kind of pull up, pull back on the reins, and I'm like kind of starting to sink into like the day job thing, and uh, and then I have to like kind of kick myself in the butt and and uh, and get back to it. But um, you know, there's a really great article. I don't. I, I guess relevant article. Um, it's fine. Uh, that that I that I read recently um, on New Music Box, uh, talking about the five to nine composer. And this dude did a series of articles how um, you know he hasn't he's had a nine to five job forever, and then he gets home and 
or not not really i don't know he's had a day job forever and he gets home and he he has four hours that he commits to composing and uh you know th- i think that's great um composing for me you know it's some some weeks it's like really you know to the wall kind of th- stuff like i'm 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 really working and constantly and in other weeks it's like I, my workload isn't as heavy. Um, so, and you know, I imagine like if I was freelancing, what would that be like? You know, because you know, composition, compositional work for me, it could be consistent, but it's not, um, you know, some Saturdays I'm going to sit there and write for 10 hours and some, some like weeks it'll be like I do like two hours a day you know um so I guess having a day job allows me to to live a good life while still um practicing my vocation of composition um so yeah I I think I think there's nothing to be afraid of I would argue that having a day job would create more structure to allow you to have a a better schedule to practice or write or research or whatever it is you want to do with your life in music. Um, Because I hopefully have a long life ahead of me. I can be a full-time composer later. Um, But right now it's like I'm not getting the kind of commissions that would support me otherwise. Um, So... And I like. I think my day job is related. I think it's uh, relevant work in my field. I do a lot of audio production and engineering, and um, that's a big part of what I do as a composer too. Um, you know, I have to, and I have to like research. I'm learning a lot about old music, which is interesting. Like I can tell stories about like Beethoven symphonies, and which I couldn't do like two years ago. Um, you know, it was very new music centric, but now I'm like broadening out um, my education while on the job it's kind of cool and can they can the audience listen to your radio shows online yeah yeah uh, all right so i'll make sure to put a link to that as well if they if they don't get enough of you here yeah they, they want to listen to more yeah i can provide you with a clip too if you want great that'll be fun um so so let's talk about so what are some of the reasons what are some of the things that you like best about being in composition um and how things go apart and then also, so it's kind of let's create a pros and cons list here. Like, why be a composer? Why don't be a composer? Um, you know, if somebody's kind of lukewarm and they don't know where they're leaning, you know, maybe one thing you'll say will push them one way or the other. Well, um, this might throw the pros and cons list. Oh, there is pros and cons, but um, I think you know, as an educator, I think everyone should compose. Um, it's nonsense to me that it's like this revered kind of like oh, composer, like they, they compose the music that we play. Like think about like the, our language. Imagine if we only read, but never wrote like we only read books and these authors like now. So I guess what I'm getting at is uh, I think you know, I think everybody should be exposed to composing because you never know how much you're going to like it. But I think it should be an essential skill, much like um, writing words is. Um, obviously, music is a little less essential than 
spoken language and written language. But uh, that being said, there are a lot of composers out there. And there's a lot of composers out there. Um, this is going to be like a real jerk thing for me to say. There's a lot of composers out there who shouldn't be composing. <laughs> um, and that's every profession. There are people in every profession exactly. doing exactly Exa- what they uh, You know, I remember, I remember going to through my undergrad, like, people getting music education degrees. And I'm like, why would you – why would anybody want this person oh, in front of children? Especially <laughs> in music ed, I feel like there's more that shouldn't than should. Yeah. In a lot of ways, which is a lot of the inspiration behind this podcast was because there were a lot of people who were performance majors. So I'm like, you've got delusions of grandeur. Yeah. Cause, and it's not because you're a bad player, but I don't think you have the work ethic for it. And then, you know, and, and all these kind of things. And so I was like, there's other careers out there that might speak to you a little bit more. And that, that was the whole yeah. thought process behind this. So that's, oh, man. So I just made the quote. Yeah, cool. This, that, no, every, uh, all these podcasts are going to get, like, my favorite quote of it, and I, I think you just said it. So um, so I guess the pros of being a composer, you know, you are creating something original. Like, if you're a creative individual, um, then it's definitely an outlet. Um, it, I think what could be a pro and a co- – depending – it depends on who you are. But, you know, my education and my – my worldview that's been shaped by my education is that composition should be kind of a research oriented task. So I think if you, there's definitely countless examples of composers who um, live in a bubble, who create music that people love and program and, and listen to, you know, that's fine. But uh, I think, I think it's important, especially if you're going to go be an academic composer, you got to be ready to read a lot and learn a lot about what's out there. And you got to be ready to try a bunch of different stuff. And I think that could be a pro or a con, you know, it's kind of, things aren't quite black and white, I I think. Um, So, you know, and not a lot of people think about composition as a research oriented task. Um, you know, I sit down unless unless a commissioner says otherwise that they don't want this. But I usually sit down and I'm like, what can I do in this piece that I haven't done before? What 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 in my uh, bank of influences can I can I kind of mix together and and see what happens? You know, and and it's a mindset of always kind of moving forward, even if you're just nudging a little bit forward. Um, and I think you can do that with any piece. But again, I don't, some people might not want to do that. They might want to um, write the same piece over and over again for different instruments and make a lot of money uh, writing recital music, which is great. <laughs> I might be offending people here. Um, but, you know, do that when you're old. <laughs> like I, <laughs> I plan on, like, writing a really good band piece when I'm, like, 47 years old and then just cashing in on that. <laughs> well, there's a lot, there are a lot of people out there, too, who say, like, they will write the you know the quote unquote more commercial music to kind of pay their bills and get along the line, but like their passion projects are very different. I mean, and I, I, I we jokingly made fun of John Williams earlier for doing, but he, and he writes the Star Wars and all that kind of stuff. But he's got orchestral. And yeah, he has like really. He's got some weird stuff out there. Yeah, he that's does. Awesome. Yeah. Um. So, um, John, if you're listening, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to make fun of you. I highly appreciate you. <laughs> um, but great. Yeah, but so I guess, I guess again, this isn't really a pro or a con. 
but just be ready to change what you do. Um, not change who you are, but like if you are passionate about composition because you want to write video game music, that's great. But you got to be able to do everything else. And that might be a con for some people. And video game music doesn't sound like video game music anymore anyway. Exactly. Um, I mean, go and listen to some of Nobuo Uematsu's Final Fantasy stuff. It sounds <laughs> very romantic. Yeah. And, um, so, you know, whatever your interests are now are going to change. And that's okay. Um, the way I look at it is you can always kind of come back to what you did before if you so choose. After you kind of, you know, go through the gauntlet of what's out there or what what a particular curriculum might put you through. Um, just think, you're, something my, my teacher, Baljinder Sekhan, uh, says that I really love is, you know, we, we talk a lot about, like, thinking outside of the box. But he says, why don't you just make your box bigger? And I think that's the key. Um, it's, it's not about, like, doing something weird for the sake of it being weird. It's about learning what you perceive as weird, which probably isn't weird, um, and then integrating it into what you already know and what you can already do. So you're, you're just gradually building your, your toolbox and you are, um, you're broadening what you do so you can do anything, anything you want. You, and, and you get to the point where someone asks you to write a piece and you say, well, I have, I do all these different things. Like, can you tell me which pieces of mine that you like so I know what to do. <laughs> you know, I think that's a goal. I want to get to that point where um where like when Aaron Campbell asks me to write him a piece, I can say, "Well, have you listened to my music? Which one do you uh which piece do you like so I know not to write you like something you hate?" <laughs> <laughs> so, and you've you've touched on a lot of them, but if you could give a small like bullet list of, you know, I'm interested in becoming a composer and getting involved in similar ways to you. Um, what are some of your suggestions? And, and it seems like you've, you've covered a lot of the aptitude, some of the kind of things you need to be as a person. Oh, yeah. What are some of the things like buy this program or get this thing or well, I read think, this book or whatever? I think what I see with young composers, and I was guilty of this myself uh, actually not too long ago, I think you should be able to write by hand. Think I think a composer, you know, I think they should work out ideas by hand. I think it it leads to more um, creative endeavors. Um, but you know, like when you think about like a notation software like Finale, it really kind of boxes us in. Like they give you bar lines already, and they give you, um, you know, you can't like just have like a blank staff and kind of go at it. Now there there is some software I believe is coming out that that does do that like like on iPad where you can just kind of like write stencil and draw yeah that's cool uh, that is cool Um, but you know like I you know working stuff out by paper and having done it the other way for so long like it's just so much better you know it's so much more free so the sooner I think because you know I've definitely been in a bind where I've had to just like compose into finale like directly into finale and uh you know again you can always come back and do that but being able to write by hand is something you know it's, it worked for so long it still works um so definitely that's a bullet point <laughs> really long-winded bullet point <laughs> um be able to write by hand um i think you know i think being acquainted with like audacity 
like a free that free recording software just just playing around with that you can do a lot with that program because you know music production and audio editing is so integrated into composition now like we haven't even really talked specifically about the difference between acoustic and electronic composition again that's probably for another time but you know being able to like just record stuff and mess around with it or layer things you know um that's very much something that is uh integral to composition these days i mean this entire podcast is edited on audacity so yeah exactly it's so versatile and it's free um it's user-friendly too yeah it's nice um but other than that you know there's books i could recommend there's you know just listening to music um you know i think a young composer could just get on google and i do this with my students just get on google and google living composers living composers under 30 living composers under 40 and you know npr does like lists of like 40 composers under 40 and it's like all these people and just listening to that music you know just um you know i think about like when i was even in college like undergrad in high school just like sitting up on the computer like wikipedia articles and like going down you know there's like jokes about it on the internet like you know, oh, I'm going to go to bed soon. And like three hours later, three in the morning, it's like, you're still on the computer. So you might as well make that time useful and find out about stuff, dig up stuff. You don't know, uh, composers, you're not familiar with music. You don't like music that you don't know that you like. Um, I think that's something that's something like I should be doing still. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, there's that joke out there that no musician listens enough Oh yeah, it's, it's 100 percent true. Especially, I feel like performers are the worst with it. Yeah, especially. Um, great. Well, is are there is there any? Do you have any resources that um, that you would like to put out there? Any books? Any other podcasts? YouTube videos? TED talks? Anything like that that you think would be helpful that I can link to the the nice people at home? Well, I think um, I think maybe. One of the best books um, for for really anybody, but young younger people interested in composition or new music, um, or just the layperson who's interested, is uh, a book by Alex Ross. The rest is noise. Um, it's a book I read in undergrad, um, but it's not dense. It's like kind of like he lays it out like like the narrative is like very story telling ish kind of thing um that starts with like just before the 20th century and goes into the 20th century and he kind of connects like composers to historical moments and historical figures and and it's just really interesting and it's a good um to me it's light reading (laughs) (laughs) uh it's good light reading uh to kind of just like acquaint yourself with some composers and some pieces that are important to the 20th century and um beyond that um there's there's some really dense (laughs) reading that like i did as a graduate student uh a book by paul griffiths modern music and after which is kind of like the rest is noise but very scholarly and more comprehensive like pretty much all the composers i've learned about i learned about through that book um and any composer worth knowing about from the uh from like the past 70 years so you could even you don't even have to read that thing cover to cover you could even 
yeah just go, go through and like highlight composer pick a, pick names. a composer learn about him re- listen to his stuff and yeah but you know this this book has like score excerpts uh you know talks about like several pieces by a composer um it's like 700 pages no it's not that long Jeez. It's, it's it's really thick it's really dense um but a couple books that i like um i like a book by composer morton feldman give my regards to eighth street um and he just it's just like his writings it's like articles he wrote and like little like snippets of like ideas and it's just really good um he talks about the lesson he learned from uh composer edgard verez and i don't know how many people are familiar with both verez and feldman but their music couldn't be more different (laughs) like verez is like really frenetic and and loud and and crazy it's like stravinsky on acid almost (laughs) at some points Feldman's is like very quiet and drawn out and and Feldman says that Verez is his most influential composer which is like really interesting to think about because their music is totally different but he says um in this book he says that the one time he like met Verez and learned took a lesson with him it was like on the street in New York City he bumped into him and uh I think Verez's advice was about orchestration and how nobody ever thinks about the time it takes from sound to get to an instrument to the back of the hall. And that's like the key to orchestration and writing music. <laughs> it's thinking about that, which is, I don't know. I, th- I think it's interesting. Um, and then a non-music book that's been really influential is um, by Italian author, Italo Calvino. His fiction is phenomenal, but this book, it's a series of lectures he did at um, Harvard university in the eighties, right before his death. Um, actually it's, it's so close to when he died that he never got to give the sixth lecture. Like it's six memo. It's called six memos for the next millennium where he's, he's talking about literature and what he thinks are key values and, uh, to, to like literature structurally basically. Um, but there's so much like Calvino's writing in general is so musical and these lectures, like he could just as well be talking about music and many composers, including myself have a piece that is, um, inspired, I guess, by, by the six memos for the next millennium. Um, but I, you know, when I read that, I read a piece based on his ideas and I'm still using the ideas I learned from that book in my music. Um, and it's just interesting to, you know, he's talking about literature, but, and really for me, that's kind of how I like perceive the world. I see it all through the lens of being a composer and it doesn't matter what it is. Like if it's cooking or, or hiking or, or whatever kind of like leisurely activity or reading about non-music stuff, you know, I try to pick up like, what can I do with this idea and turn it into music? And, um, you know, it's that's a thing a lot of creative people do Yeah, towards their their respective arts oh yeah awesome so um your website's pretty easy right just tylerkleinmusic.com yeah and it's um k-l-i-n-e it's not one of the many other variations (laughs) (laughs) um and actually if you google search his name it'll pop up make sure you do put composer and it's it's right there it's the first website up um he's got you've got links to soundcloud on your website with performances yeah a lot of your pieces videos um some pictures of me (laughs) 
Um, yeah, yeah, and there's so you like can see the man behind the voice. Yeah, you can. Uh, <laughs> you know, I have a map. You can see where my music's been performed. It's kind of cluttered. Oh, that's kind of cool. Yeah, it's. Um, and then, so is there anything else you want to plug? Any social media that you want people? If how do we get a hold of you? Um, I guess just my website. Um, yeah, I, I don't. I don't know my face. You'd have to friend me on Facebook. I don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> but <laughs> well, the, and the contact on the website is it'll shoot, intuitive too. Shoot me yeah. an email. Yeah, hey, that's pretty intuitive. If anybody has any more questions for him, hey, well, Tyler, thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you for being episode one yeah, and very it's, impromptu. It's, it's I, been a pleasure. The the audience doesn't know I called him on my drive back from uh, my Christmas vacation. I think I spoke to him not 48 hours ago about coming on to here. Yeah. And he was like, yes, let's get it done. Let's do it. And he invited me into the studio here. Um, so, hey, thank you so much for coming on. Um, I really appreciate a lot of the things you said. Um, opened my mind to some stuff. Anything else you want to say? Uh, go Bulls. Go Bulls. Yeah, today. we got the Birmingham Bull today. <laughs> um, which I'm either going to listen to this and be really excited about when it posts on Monday, or I'm going to listen to it and be really upset <laughs> with whatever the outcome is. Thank you guys so much for joining us on the Young Musicians Guys podcast. Until next time, my name is Aaron Campbell, and I will see you then.